Well, guys, I hope you have a Bible, and if you do, would you make your way to 2 Corinthians? We are in chapter 3 on Sunday mornings. We want to invite you to be there, and so again, hoping you have a Bible. If you don't, hey, we have them in front of you, and chairs in front of you. You've got Bibles there, page number on the screen where you can get there rapidly. You can use an electronic device and open up the Bible app in, in a place that you like it there. One way or another, our intention is that you would join us in a Bible study this morning, and that it would be the Word of God that you see, you hear, and that that would be the thing that lands, that it would be His truth that does a work in your life. And we want to tell you that's God's intention. We want to tell you that's the best hope before us right now, is that God's Word, word would work in our lives. So again, our hope is we just continue our verse-by-verse study in Second Corinthians, is that's what you're doing. You got a Bible open, online, overflow, it's the same invitation. Grab a Bible, join us this morning, and let's ask God to open that to us. So with that in mind, I'm going to lead you in prayer, as we do each time. I'm going to ask that God would open my heart. Um, would you ask the same, that he'd give you an ear to hear what he has you to hear from this this morning? Jesus, we come to this moment, and I thank you for your truth. I thank you that you have given it to us. I thank you for its power and its authority. But Lord, weakness at times, just admitting it's us, and I think of even that moment, Jesus, that following your resurrection, that you met with your disciples, and it says you opened up their understanding, that they might comprehend your truth. God, thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing it then. Now I'm asking you to do it again. Give us understanding. Just open up our understanding to see more of you, more of your truth, more of what you have. Help it to be clear uh, that we get it and understand it. But then, God, would you do the most amazing thing? Would you take that truth and make it so perfect and personal in every person's heart? You have a way of doing that that just boggles my understanding, but I love that you do that. You meet us, and you take your word, and you press it into hearts in ways that are meeting us right where we are and right what we needed to hear. That is not something I can do, not even close, but you, God, can. Do that, we ask. Do that, we ask, drawing us to you and all that you are and all that you have. We ask for that right now, and we ask for it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 3, that's where we are this morning, excited to see the things that are in front of us, but I wanted to preface it and just let you know, hey, that we're going to be talking about some difficult things this morning, or maybe that's not the right way of saying it, very big things, uh, that we're going to be talking about just such, such huge concepts that kind of put ourselves in the realm of it that's kind of like, you know, this picture of, an, of, a, of a mountain and an iceberg all together that encompasses so much territory and so much space that there's no way we're going to do it fully justice this morning, uh, hopefully scratching the surface that'll meet us where we are and yet draw us to things that we're going to seek to understand. What is it we want to talk about? Well, we want to talk about what the Bible calls the new covenant. We're going to talk about what the Bible calls the new covenant. And for some of you, that's going to be a light bulb right off the bat. Others of you are like, I have no idea what you just said. And I just want to say, I know that's kind of the, the realm that we live. For some of you, you have a pretty good understanding of this. Others, you're in the middle where you kind of have a loosey-goosey kind of trying to get their understanding. And some of you have no idea. And I just want to let you know that we're talking about a mammoth thing, so big that it really is one of the big messages of the entire Bible. 
It's one of the big truths that kind of go from the beginning to end in many ways and encompass so much in the middle of it. We get that beginning brokenness that's recorded for us in Genesis and hope that begins to be there as God seeks to fix and establish relationship in Exodus, and yet in the midst of it begins to give promises, promises of something better, promises of something more that flows through Exodus specifically into the book of Deuteronomy, but then massively moves forward into the prophets that in the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel specifically, God begins to highlight the new covenant, telling us of something that's coming, something that's going to be just transformative and real and all the hope that's there. And as you splash into the New Testament, that's what it's about. The gospel comes, the the glorious Son of God comes, and He establishes this incredible place of what we get to think through this new covenant, and yet it is so big that for much of the rest of the New Testament, it's going to try to help us understand it. Books like Romans, Hebrews, and Galatians specifically make this such a big subject. Now, again, if you don't know, I mean, for some of you, you know your Bibles, you're like, oh, those are the easy books, right? Um, no, those are not. Like, those are the ones that's like, man, you know, I, I love, it's even kind of biblical. When Peter writes about it in First Peter, uh, he, he says, hey, you know, Paul writes to us some things which are difficult to understand. That's like a Bible verse, guys, and it's absolutely true, and that we find ourselves thinking, okay, I'm trying to wrap my mind around some of these things, and they're big things, and they really, really are. So let's just understand, there's no way we're covering all of this. It would take forever, you know, in some senses. We're just scratching the surface, but in a way that would help us understand what this is and and where we need to go with that. So let's approach it this way this morning. Let me take just a few moments and give you just a thumbnail sketch of what the new covenant is so that we at least have some frame of reference uh, when we're thinking about what it is. Then we're going to talk just briefly why are we talking about it now? Like, why is it here in 2 Corinthians? And then we'll hear uh, what it's going to tell us out of our passage this morning as it unpacks just the, the weight and, and the wonder of the new covenant that God has for us. That said, you might just note it as we even begin. Uh, go back to verse 5, which is what we covered last week. It says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything is being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient as ministers, and here's again where you want to pay good attention, ministers of the new covenant. We are ministers of this new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. New covenant, what is that? Well, maybe it's easy to think about it this way. When we think about the new covenant, part of it is held over against what we'll loosely say is the old covenant. Although, like Hebrews will say, it's the first covenant uh, in the midst of that. But it's helpful for us to think about new versus old and kind of the contrast in, in these looks at this whole thing. So what is the old covenant? Well, in one sense, uh, it, we, we think about what a covenant is. It's important for us to understand that a covenant is a binding contract. That's like a very simple understanding of what a covenant is. It's bigger than that, uh, but it's helpful to think about it. So a covenant is a contract, if you will, made between God and man, established on the principles that are inside the covenant, and it's unbreakable. I mean, that's the idea of a covenant, is it cannot be changed. Once a covenant's established, it's, it's firm. It, it, it is that, and it's unalterable. It's a covenant that God makes with man. So that covenant, that old covenant, well, in many ways, it's this understanding of the entire Old Testament. Most of you know, you got a Bible, you have it broken out into the Old Testament, 39 books in the Old, 27 in the New. 
the majority of what the Old Testament is, is unpacking for us this idea of this Old Covenant. Very specifically, the law, also known as the Torah, which is the first five books that lay down the foundation of what that is. And it would certainly include the Ten Commandments. That speaking when Moses goes up and gets those Ten Commandments and, and brings down those two tablets that have the Ten Commandments on there, that is certainly what we're talking about. In fact, it might even just be quickly helpful uh, to notice. Go back to your Bibles and let's just pick it up uh, in verse 2 for a second. It says, You, he speaks to the church in Corinth, are epistle written in hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone. Pay attention to that. That's the Ten Commandments. But on tablets of flesh, that is of the heart. So yeah, we're contrasting that which is what God is doing in this new covenant with this old covenant, and it includes the Old Testament, the law, the Ten Commandments. And again, for most of us, that's, you know, you're not trying to, you might not understand even why I need to make sure I say that, but I just need to, because there are a few groups that, you know, find themselves thinking, well, hey, the Ten Commandments doesn't fall under uh, the, the Old Covenant. They, it stands over that, not so. Certainly, he's placing it in this, and so we think about all of those things, and we lay them there before us. Well, Maybe you hear that, and it's possible that you'll hear what I'm saying this morning, and you might be thinking that we're kind of looking on this disrespectfully, that we're saying, hey, that's old, that's bad. That's not what the Bible's saying. No, the Bible's very, very clear. When we think about the Old Testament, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, it's holy. It is absolutely good. In fact, in Romans, he says it this way to us. What should we say then? Is the law, that Torah, that Old Testament, is it sin? I mean, is, it, is the problem that the law is hurting us or it's bad? He says, certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. It's like, no way. The law is not bad at all. In fact, he'll go on to say the law is holy and the commandment is holy and it's just and good. We think about everything that God has spoken. We think about that Old Covenant, that Old Testament, that the Ten Commandments, everything is there. Boy, it's good. It's, it's a revelation of God. It's a revelation of His character. It's a revelation of His holiness. But here's what's important. It can't save anybody. The Old Testament, the covenant that was found in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments that show God nobody gets saved that way. Galatians would say it this way. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Nobody can be made right with God through the, the Old Testament, through the Torah, through living a life under that Old Covenant. It does not work for anyone, and it never has. Jesus alone is perfect, and nobody else is. The Old Testament, the Torah, the, the law lays out God's perfections, calls for obedience, but nobody has ever, can ever do that. So it doesn't actually save. It can't, nobody can be saved. Nobody has ever been saved by trying to live according to that. Well, then why did we have that? Why do we need that? And again, if you're unfamiliar with this, we're talking about half of our Bibles, the first 39 books, right? We're talking about the majority of human history. 4,000 years of human history that flowed up to the time of Christ. 
Why did, what makes this such an important element for us to understand? Well, in many ways, one of the key factors that God establishes firmly is our desperate need for Christ. That part of what the point of the old covenant was, was to absolutely show us how desperately much we need Christ. You give it to us this way in Galatians. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer, longer under a tutor. He says, when you think about it this way, it's like the law was a school teacher, a personal tutor who comes alongside and, and, and says, let me take your hand and, and show you how broken you are so I can lead you to Jesus. Because you might, in your own false spiritual pride and, and falseness, think, well, I'm good, I'm okay. You know, like I think, you know, I'm better than some and probably going to stand before, you know. And, and people think that all the time. And he says, the law comes and says, you're in super trouble. Like, you are broken. And, and God is a holy, perfect God. And so the law brings us to Christ, not to establish the law. He says, when we come to this place that the law brings us to Christ so that we can be justified, made right by faith, he says, after that's come, we're no longer under that. Like, that was intentionally to bring us to Christ, but it's not that we now seek to live under that, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. So, again, we get just a brief understanding, certainly not a perfect understanding, but the old covenant, this place was there was to show us our great need for Christ. So, what's the new covenant? What's the new covenant? Well, in the most simple way, it is Christianity or real Christianity. Not everything that calls itself Christian, but that which is genuine, really, of God in Christ. That is a new covenant relationship. The new covenant is all speaking about how incredibly good that is. And that new covenant was signed for us, if you will, by the blood of Christ that that contract that God makes with mankind where he establishes hope for us, Jesus paid for that relationship we have, this new covenant relationship through his blood. He gives it to us this way. The night before he went to the cross, sat down with his disciples and he said, he took that cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you created what we know as communion, where we celebrate and remember what Jesus did for us, but it's a celebration of what he accomplished. But he said, I did it. My blood is that which is bringing you into a new relationship. My blood is establishing a brand new covenant so that we have this brand new relationship, and it is entirely paid for by him, that he's the one that accomplishes that, that he's the one that does that. Now, that is so good and so powerful, but that's been the theme I mean, that really had, it, it wasn't like just when Jesus came on the scene, you know, he announced something that nobody had known. It had been kind of, you know, being spoken of for, for thousands of years, you know, just in the midst of this, that just that God had been speaking that hope. In fact, Moses himself speaks it, this promise that just begins to unpack out of the Old Testament, everything that would be there. We think about it this way in Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you, a prophet like me, from your midst and from your brethren, him you shall hear. Hey, just track with me for a moment. Moses, I hope you understand. Moses, he's the guy. He's the guy that goes up on Mount Sinai. He actually got the Ten Commandments. God writes it on those tablets, gives it to him. He comes down the mount to give it to the people. I mean, this is a pretty incredible moment. He helps establish that covenant of saying, hey, guys, if you'll just do this, you can earn life that nobody can. 
In fact, God helps him to see it. God shows Moses, like, they're not going to obey you. And he shows him generations to come and all that's going to go bad. And so at the same moment as Moses is announcing this, he begins to say, hey, you know, there's going to be another deliverer. There's going to be somebody else that comes to deliver you. And here's what's going to be different. You're going to listen to him because <laughs> you're not listening to me. Like, you're not listening to me very well. He's going to come and you're going to hear him. In fact, he'll go on to say, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. He says when, when he comes and he does this, he's going to do a work not external, but internal. He's going to begin changing you from the inside out and giving you a genuine relationship where you know God so you can actually have life and life eternal. That hope is building from early on in the Old Testament that even just says, hey, this is, you know, this is showing your brokenness, but there's not always going to be that way, and it shows up again and again. For example, in the prophets it does. Some of you are reading through the book of Ezekiel with us. Hope you're enjoying that. Hope you totally understand everything you're reading. Like, wow, this is like crazy kind of communications in the midst of it, right? But he speaks of this over and over again. So you just read it a couple days ago. For those who are reading Ezekiel with us, he says, I'm going to give them one heart. I'll put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. He says, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to, I'm going to change them from the inside out. I'm going to give them a new spirit. It, it's not always going to be this way. Jeremiah actually is one that just takes that and puts all of that in probably its most succinct nutshell. And he does so in Jeremiah chapter 31. Before I quickly read this, quick highlight um, for you Bible students, this passage that we're about to quote right here, we're going to read it from Jeremiah because that's when it was given. But Hebrews, is, again, is a book that unpacks a lot of this new covenant, and it quotes it in its entirety in Hebrews chapter 10, just saying, hey, this is what we're talking about. This is what God promised. This is what it is. Well, what is it? It says, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not the old one. I'm going to make a brand new covenant. Not, he says, according to the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them out by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband, says the Lord. He says, it's not going to be the old covenant. That covenant that was the Ten Commandments, was this establishing of the law, which he says, because you broke it. Like, I gave you, I gave you the rule, and, and nobody lived up to it. Though I was faithful, God says. I was a husband who held fast to you. It wasn't God's brokenness. It was their brokenness that did it. And so nobody could live up to the standard that God lays out. But he's going to give a new covenant, he says. And that covenant that he says he'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they'll be my people. So I'm going to do a brand new thing. I'm going to change them from the inside out. I'm going to make them what Jesus would say in John chapter 3 is born again. I'm going to change them so this transformation isn't an external thing. It's who they are on the inside. He says, I'm going to do this brand thing that's going to change them on the outside. I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. No more, he says, shall every man teach his neighbor. And every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. That's the new covenant. 
That's the new covenant. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to change it so they, they have this relationship with me. I'm going to change them from the inside out. They're going to be born again. And, and they're all going to know me so that it would never happen that you're going to have to tell somebody who's in that that they need that. Now, don't misunderstand that. I can tell you as brothers and sisters in Christ, believe on God more. Like, you should know him more. But what is impossible is for anybody to be a Christian that doesn't have a relationship with God because there is no other way. You don't get saved because your parents are saved or your spouse is saved or because you learned something. Every person who comes to become a follower of Jesus under the new covenant, we all know him. We know him. That defines what we are, that Christianity now is knowing God. And in this relationship with Jesus, our sin's gone. Our sin's gone. Where it says, I will forgive their iniquity, their sin, I will remember no more, that Jesus would pay the price for that, and and, and that would be completely accomplished, bring us into a relationship because Christ paid for it with his blood. Yeah, that's where we are. That's this incredible weight uh, of what this is. That's this incredible, beautiful thing that is a new covenant, and that's what he's talking about. In fact, it might just be helpful to go back and see it for a moment and see that's where we've been building. Just want to remind you, go back to chapter 2 with me for a moment, end of chapter 2, where it simply tells us in verse 14, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Such a great verse. And if you were with us when we talked about this a few weeks back, we told you then what I want to remind you now. The idea of the triumph of Christ is he's won. He's been victorious. That Jesus died for our sins on the cross and he rose from the grave. And as he died for our sins, he said it is finished. And it was. By one sacrifice, he forever paid the price so that now we're not, you know, seeking to earn that favor with God. In Christ, we have it. We, he's won. He's done that so that now in this triumph where Jesus has won this victory, we're now kind of in this throng that, that is following him, almost in this parade that is a celebration of who he is. So much so, he says, it's as if we are this aroma that is constantly just saying, look how amazing our Jesus is. Go back and see it. Tells us this in verse 15, for we are to God, the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, aroma of life leading to life. Wow. So real Christianity is because Jesus won, and now we get to be this celebration that is constantly pointing to Christ, constantly helping others see how beautiful and good he is, and yet as he brings that reality across, he asks us a question at the end of verse 16. Go back and see it, just reading, starting in verse, at the beginning of the verse. To the one, we are aroma of death leading to death. To the other, an aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for such things? Like, who's enough for that? I mean, to think about us being this example of Christ or showing people how Jesus is, who's enough? Well, he detours through a couple of questions as they're asking him questions about being commended, and he comes back to that where we were last week. Notice down in chapter 3, verse 4. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, 
but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Wow. Who's enough for this? Not us. We're not sufficient of ourselves to think that anything's from ourselves. No, we've come to the place that all of our sufficiency is now from God. All of it is this because that's this incredible new covenant relationship we have in Jesus. Okay, so there you are. I mean, just a very thumbnail sketch, not, not fully accomplishing everything that's there. Some of you are like, Jim, you didn't cover a lot of it. I know, there's a lot there. Others of you are like, totally fried my brain. You know, like I felt like I was in school doing theology class or something. No, I'm sorry. But just track with me for a moment. It's really, really good news. And this is a big message. It's the big, big message of the Bible. And, and so much is there. But why is it being brought up at this moment in Corinth? And why should you hear what he has to say? What would be the issue that's being dealt with? Well, they had begun to ask questions of the Apostle Paul. If you've been with us, you know, hey, the church in the city of Corinth is one that Paul planted. He had gone there and shared the gospel with them for the first time, and people had believed upon Jesus, and he spent a year and a half of his life planting the church there. But then he'd gone on uh, to, to other churches, and now they've begun this correspondence uh, between him and the church there in Corinth. And they've begun asking, you know, kind of questions. Like, Paul, why did you make the decisions you made? Why did you do this and not that? And, and somewhere in their questions, they actually began to ask at the early part of chapter 3, they're like, do we need to give you a letter of commendation? Like, even though he had planted the church there, almost they had begun asking for written validation of who Paul was, and all of that's flowing from a really weird direction. It might be helpful that in many ways, we talked about it then, that it has a propensity of going back to kind of a human trust in the midst of it, doing church like a business, we said a few weeks back, instead of a, a relationship with Jesus. But more than that, it's flowing out of the roots that would be of this old covenant, uh, of this law. So let me just quickly answer a couple quick questions or explain a couple of things if you're unfamiliar with it. The more we read through 2 Corinthians, one of the things that becomes clear is that after Paul left the church there in Corinth and had began to take the gospel to other places, either some people rose up from in the midst of the church there in Corinth or other leaders began to come and they began to introduce what we often would call Judaism or they were Judaizers. If you're unfamiliar with that term, quick explanation, because it was a big deal at the very beginning of the church and is still a big deal today. So the gospel comes uh, and begins to pour out in the book of Acts, and you get to read that. People get saved. Uh, people all over Jerusalem, Jews are getting saved, and then the amazing thing happens. Gentiles begin getting saved. People that aren't Jewish begin getting saved, and, and they're trying to figure out what do you do with that? How do you, how do you, you know, how does that work? And so there's a group of people in Acts 15 who crop up and say, hey, it's really, really good that you get saved, but you got to become Jewish. Like, now you're saved, you got to go back under the law. Like, you're going to have to do everything we've ever been asked to do uh, because you're getting saved is basically making you Jewish. And so they came and said, okay, it's, now you're back under the old covenant. Now we got to live under that. And, and that lie was a big part of it. And the church rightly establishes, they look at it and say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Not only is Gentiles not having to become Judaism, the only way Jews are going to get saved is if we believe upon Jesus in that same new covenant relationship. We can no longer trust in the law to save us. It can't be 
But that was a lie that began to press itself there. And the funny thing is, hey, nothing's new under the sun. It's still a lie that circulates in our world today. Again, not all of you are totally aware of it. Some of you there have some people that would say, hey, yeah, you got to do that. You got to obey the Old Testament. You need to do the Ten Commandments or any of those things to, to really be a Christian. And, and some would bring you back under that. There are parts of that coming out of some of what's often called in our day the Hebrew Roots Movement. Hey, it's not all bad. Hey, there's some really good stuff uh, in some of that that reminds us that we are grafted in uh, to the things that are of the Old Testament, but there's some bad things where it seeks to bring us back under the law. And that's a dangerous thing. That's a dangerous thing in our world. Add to it this. Most of us, if not all of us, even if this sounds totally irrelevant to your life, it isn't because we can find ourselves struggling with a legalistic relationship with God, that we can come back to trying to earn God's favor like it was under the Old Testament, trying to, to gain that, putting ourselves into a space that we create Christianity that is kind of based on rules and regulations and man-centered, this, this hope that is there. And he says, that's not what we are. That's not what we are. And, and so that lie was present there. It was pressing in, and it still presses into our world today so that for some of you, you would understand this better than others. Again, for some of you, again, you might be here going like, Jim, you lost me. I'm still trying. Well, I hope it helps. I hope it still meets you where you are. But some of you are like, Jim, I wish I'd heard this years ago because I wasted um, days, months, years, decades, uh, literally decades for some. It's like, man, I, I, I fell under a legalistic relationship with God. I was trying to earn God's favor every day. It, it, it just, it controlled my life, and I lost sight of what God actually is. I lost sight of what that is. And so we would say to you, hey, this is relevant to you. So in that sense, that's what we're looking for. We want for us to see the beauty of the new covenant so that it would protect us from turning away from that and finding ourselves attracted to that, which would put us back under a legalistic law relationship with God. In fact, Paul will say it this way later. I kind of like it in chapter 11 when he simply says it this way, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He says, I'm just worried about you. I'm concerned for you. Satan's a liar. He was a liar from the beginning. He's still lying, and I'm afraid you would be robbed of the beauty and the simplicity of what Christ is, uh, of what this Christianity is, this new covenant is. I don't want you to be turned away from that. That's where I am this morning. I want you to see how beautiful it is so that in some senses you would just be like, that's what I'm after. Like, I want more of that. I want more of Jesus. I want more of what that looks like. I want more of, uh, of where that would go, that it would draw us into everything that that is. So in many ways, that helps us kind of answer the question, why are we here? Why are we here? Okay, so breathe for a moment. Just, okay, here's what we've done. We've quickly understood it. You now have at least a small understanding of what we're talking about when we say new covenant. It's Christianity. It's a, it's a heart relationship with Jesus over against a legalistic relationship that is that which would rob us. We need to hear it. So what is it he wants to tell us about it? Well, let me tell you four things that are found here in our passage this morning that will help us kind of see the beauty of this in a way that we would stay on track in, in pursuing what God has for us. So begin with me again there in verse 6. Just at the end of verse 5, it says that our sufficiency is from God. Verse 6, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills 
Spirit gives life. It's not of the letter, it's but of the Spirit. This new covenant is alive. It's Spirit. It is the work of the Spirit inside of us. It is incredible that way. It's not a legalistic letter. It's not a, a letter where it's being, you know, by, 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 by things that you kind of check off on, on the thing where you're fulfilling, you know, some obligations. This has been brought to us by a spiritual work. Now, easier for me just to give you verses because this is exactly what Paul unpacks for us in the book of Romans. I mean, he argues for the first you know, seven chapters about our brokenness and how broken we are and, and how desperately need Christ and how only by believing in Christ can you be saved. And then in chapter 8, he says it this way. There is now, therefore now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Again, Spirit is what we're paying attention to, right? I mean, this is, this is not a flesh thing. This is a work of, of God. This is the work of the Spirit. And those of us who have this, because Jesus paid the price for our sins, there's no more condemnation. Like, that's no longer where we are, because we now have this relationship with Jesus. In fact, verse 2 says it this way. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. This is what Christ has done. What he has done by this work of the Spirit is he has freed us from that Old Testament relationship, from that covenant kind of living. Instead, we are brought into Christ and made free from that. And I like that. I think that's pretty clear in the midst of that. Um, but as I was kind of doing some research on it, I like the way the New Living Translation kind of gave us as a paraphrase of this. It's kind of more of a commentary on it, but still nevertheless helpful. And the New Living Translation says verse 2 this way, And because you belong to him. The power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. It's just because you're his, because you're his, because of this, the spirit has freed us from that, the, 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 the dominance of sin, the power of sin that only was producing death. Absolutely true. Practically, he goes on to say it this way, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Like, wow, this is really, really good, but it's a mouthful. So just understand a couple quick things. What the law could not do, God did by sending his son. What the law could not do, God did by sending his son. What the law could not do because of us, because of our flesh, because of our weakness, that's the problem. The law is good. I'm the problem. I, I, I can't do it. I can't live up to that. I can't, I can't be that in my flesh. I have no propensity or ability to do that. Our flesh, your flesh, my flesh is weak. So Jesus became flesh. Jesus took on flesh, took on, became, you know, took on that human flesh to die on the cross for our sin, and he condemned sin. So that now sin no longer has power over us. He condemned it by his blood so that now there's no more condemnation for us because he paid the price for that. He rescued us out of that so that now the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is amazing. And if there's one thing that I'm hoping you just really get at this moment is what he's telling us here that helps us understand this, that this new covenant relationship is by the Spirit because it changes everything. It changes everything. Now, the danger is you could read this and, and, and just not be thinking it through practically, so God give me help to communicate it and then take you further than I can take you into this. 
let me tell you what this is telling you, and let me tell you what it's not telling you. This is not saying that by the power of the Spirit, we can be perfect now. It's not saying what the flesh couldn't do, now Jesus is doing, so that now we don't sin ever again. I just want to say in, in, in a kind and gentle way, boy, that'd be great. And technically, I suppose we could always do that if we just walk with him. We, we fail to do that, but we're not that. So what am I saying? Well, I just want to make sure you don't think you're alone. There is not a perfect person in this room, just in case you thought you were the only one. There's not anybody in here that's like, man, I totally got it going. I am totally doing everything well. Like Jesus is alive in me, and I don't ever mess up ever again. Boy, I wish that were true for any of us. It's not true. It's not true for anybody in this room or anybody in this world. We still have this flesh right now. We still have this flesh. Paul would say it in Galatians that, that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these two things are contrary to us that keeps us from living the life that we really could live because they're still both present. They're still both present, but here's the deal. What he's telling us is that now in Christ, this new covenant relationship is meant to be lived in the spirit, not in the flesh. That changes everything. That changes everything. And would to God that all of us were doing that right now, it's probably not true. It's probably not true. See, here's the deal. So present, so relevant that for some of us here this morning, you're here in an old covenant relationship with God or trying to live an old covenant relationship with God, meaning you're still trying to earn his favor. You're still trying to, you know, like earn what God has for you. You know, the kind of thing that the, the very reason you got up to come to church today actually plays into this. So why are you here? What made you get up and come to church today? For some of you, you're trying to earn points with God. I mean, honestly, you're like, okay, I'm gonna go to church and then I'm gonna read my Bible and I'm gonna pray, kind of put that on my scorecard, you know, kind of give me the brownie points because I'm just kind of hoping that, that, you know, that that's gonna kind of play into my life because I really wanna make you happy. And so look at this, go, and, and you're still trying to earn God's favor. And for you, church, it's religious. It's fulfilling obligations. It's, it's, a, it's a list of rules. It's a list of regulations. And you're trying hard to make God like you. But you're desperately afraid he doesn't. And I want to tell you, if that's where you are this morning, you're on the wrong road. Not saying you're not saved because Christians get messed up on this too, but that's not how this works. We're not living this law where, where we're walking according to the flesh. We are walking according to the Spirit. It's a very different thing. So walk has the idea of, of doing what's right. And so again, my question for you is when you try to do what's right, whether that's coming to church, reading your Bible, praying, sharing the gospel, doing the right thing, how are you doing that? For some of you, again, it's a legalistic relationship. And wow, that's not working out really well for you. You'll spend your day just feeling bad, feeling like a failure, like you're always there, but it's not the way Christianity is. How is Christianity done? It's now not me, it's him. I've come to the place that what, it, what he teaches us in the gospel is, I'm not just a little bit broken, I'm entirely broken. There is nothing good in my flesh. Let me try to do it on my own, and it will always be tainted. That's what we talked about last week, right? For some of you who are there, let's go back and see it. There in verse 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being of our, from ourselves. Our sufficiency is from God. 
says, I've come to the place that I don't think I can do anything. I'm so broken, sin so messed me up, that there's not anything that can flow out of that. All I can do is brokenness, but what God has done for me is that now he does it in me. Where Paul would say, it's no longer I, it's Christ who's laboring in me. So that the key of the Christian life isn't earning God's favor, it's enjoying God's favor. The key of the Christian life is not a religion, it's a relationship that now we walk out of that show that what Jesus would say in John 15, right? He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me. Abide in me, and we can do some good things. Like, you're going to bear good fruit. But then he just says the same thing there that we're saying here. Without me, you can't do anything. Without me, try to do this on your own. And it's bad. Like, you can't, you're not just a little bit broken, you're entirely broken. So what you need to do the Christian life is you need to let me. You need to walk with me. You need to do what Paul would say in Galatians chapter 6 is, hey, walk in the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Like, walk with me. So that would be a very different thing. To the extent that you did that this morning, here's how it would work. You got up for church not trying to earn God's favor. You wanted to enjoy it. God, I just want to be with you. I want to walk in what you've already given me. I want to come and I want to worship you and I want to know you. And I want to just walk in what's already mine. Like, I want, I want, to, I want to read the Bible today because I want to hear your voice. Not because I'm trying to earn your favor. I have your favor in Christ. I'm your child, but I, I want time with you. I want, to, I want to serve you. And so this is now flowing not as a work of my flesh. I'm enjoying. I, I have everything in Christ. I have all of this. And so now my Christian life is in saying, God, work this in and out of me. Like I want to, I want to lean more on you. I want to trust more in you. I, I want this to be that because this is no longer me. It's you. Because I'm insufficient of myself to think that anything could come from me. I know my sufficiency needs to come from you. Dave Guzik, in his commentary, says it this way, may be helpful for someone. He says, this new covenant features transformation from within, not regulation through external law, not regulation from without. He says, here's the thing. The Old Testament, the covenant, it is trying to force us to be what's good from the outside. But the new covenant says, how about I change it from the inside? How about we have a relationship so that your life is no longer flowing that way, but now it's God working this in and through you. That's incredibly good. And if you could get that alone, you'd be like, okay, that's good. Like that is worth doing. Why would I ever want to move away from a spirit-giving, life-giving relationship with Jesus to being legalistic? That's a terrible idea. It really, really is. Hey, we want to keep on that track, but I need to quick pause Before we do that, because I need to make sure I quickly say something about this verse. So, verse 6 is amazing. Again, he's telling us, hey, we have this new covenant relationship, and he says, hey, it's not of the letter, it's of the Spirit. Now, I've kind of helped you try to, I think, I hope, small bit understand that, but please understand we're not talking about Spirit-filled preaching, and we're not talking about someone who says, hey, we have the Spirit, so we no longer need the Bible. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to quickly explain that, but some of you have no idea what that is, and if I'm just, that's you, you can just kind of like, don't listen. It's not really, for, I don't know. I just, great. I just want you to know it. But here's a weird thing that's happened. Sometimes people take verses out of their context, and they try to make them say something that has nothing to do with being said. And so this is one of those verses where somebody will come and say, hey, you know, oh, you're one of those Bible churches? You like pay attention to the letter? 
Oh, we're into the Spirit. We're into the Spirit. We, we, we don't need that anymore. In fact, years ago, I was leading a home fellowship, and we actually had somebody come in and quote this verse, and they said, you guys should just all close your Bibles. Like, that's, 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 that's old. That's letter. We're not into the letters. Now we're into the Spirit. Now we're into the Spirit. So what's really authoritative right now in the room is what God is saying to me through the Spirit. And the most gentle way I can say it is, no way, Jose. Like, that's not it. Like, that's not how this works. That's not what this verse is about. You're taking this verse and making it say something it's not saying. Oh, don't get me wrong. We do have the work of the Spirit, but the Bible is the Word of God. Though he tells us all Scripture is given to us by inspiration so that we can be adequate. I mean, there's no sense that God is dissing the Bible in this verse. He's letting us know this legalistic relationship based on the Old Testament or this life-giving relationship that's based on Christ. Those are very, very different. So I just need to quickly say, hey, if somebody tries to use this verse to say that, just... I mean, hopefully you'll go like, that's not what the verse is talking about. Like, you read it in its context. We're not talking about that. We are talking about the beauty of the new covenant. And what he's telling us is this beautiful new covenant is spiritual and it's life-giving. It's life-giving. That's what he told us there in verse 6, right? He says, you know, who's made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter kills. Spirit gives life. Spirit gives life. The old covenant, the letter is that, and it is true. Try to earn God's favor today. Try to live a life that you're going to earn your way to heaven, and you'll die. You'll die. There's no way that nobody ever got saved through living that life. It is that. The only way to have eternal life is is the new covenant, is that Jesus paid the whole price for our sin. And so that we could be saved, so that we'd say, if we believe upon Jesus, that's the basis of my relationship, that's everything I am. And, and Jesus said, hey, John three sixteen, whoever believes in me, you're not going to perish, you'll have life. I'll give you life, because you've now believed upon Christ and what he is. That's what this is. It's life-giving. But it's not just salvation. It's life-giving all the way through. So that Jesus would say in John ten ten, right, I've come to give you life and life that's more abundantly. If you'll discover what the new covenant is, it's like, oh, this is really good. I should do this more often. Like, this is a good way to do this. Love Jesus, live for him, and say, God, I need your help to do anything and everything so that I don't do anything on my own. Yeah, that's a really good deal. It's life-giving. It's life-giving. To the extent that we don't do that, it's dead. Be legalistic. Try to earn your way with God. Some of you have done it. Some of you are doing it right now. I mean, like, that's why you got to church this morning, and even right now, you're like, does that mean I don't get the brownie point? You know, like, I mean, I really thought it was worthwhile for me coming, and you're saying I don't actually get, okay, I don't know, why am I here then? If that's what you're doing, it doesn't actually work really well. It makes you miserable, because you fail all the time. You'll never live up to God's standard, and you'll always be miserable, but if you could say, no, this is life-giving, this is life-giving, fact, not only is it life-giving, it's absolutely glorious. That's where he goes next, where he just tells us if we could see this, if we could see the difference between the new and the old, we'd say, okay, the new is glorious. The old, it's got glory, but nothing compared to the new. Go and read it with me, verse 7. If the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away? How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness had glory, has, exceeds much more in glory. 
For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. Okay, think about this. Glory, beautiful. It says, when you think about the Old Testament, we already have said, it's not bad. It's not that we look at the law or the Ten Commandments and say those are ugly. It's beautiful. In fact, it was beautiful even then. So Moses, who gets a chance to be a part of that, he goes up Mount Sinai and he gets the Ten Commandments, right? He actually gets these two tablets that have the law, have God's law written on it, and there's a moment of glory. Gives it to us this way in Exodus. So it was when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of testimony were in Moses' hands when he came down from the mountain and Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. Crazy moment. Can you imagine it for a moment? So Moses is carrying the Ten Commandments down and they're freaking out. Not only because he's carrying these, but literally being in God's presence. The Shekinah glory of God, the glory as close as Moses could get, it is now bathed upon Moses, so he is actually glowing. I mean, literally glowing. I mean, kind of like just shining with the glory of God in the midst of it because it is a glorious moment that God is showing his side of the covenant. But there was more. We think about it this way. When, when Moses was up there, we had this account in Exodus 20. It says, all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Try to imagine it for a moment. Mount Sinai where God gives the Ten Commandments, literally descends in a cloud, and there's lightning, and there's thunder. There's the kind of thing where there's flashes, and there's trumpets, and it literally tells us in another passage, the earth itself is shaking and moving. I mean, it's one of these moments where you just would have known, God's here. God's here. God's presence is here. It certainly was. So much so that the children of Israel tell Moses, you speak with us and we will hear. Let it not God speak to us lest we die. Like we're in God's presence. He's going to kill us. And God will actually respond to us and said, they're right. Tell them they're right. That they're right in their response because God's presence is so glorious. But here's the problem. He was glorious. People were broken. So even though the law was gloriously showing who God was, it didn't bring life, it brought death. So it was, it was beautiful. It's not that we look upon the Old Testament or the Old Testament is not beautiful. We, we do see the beauty, but ultimately that beauty leads us to Christ. But the new covenant is so much more beautiful. In fact, he uses a few terms that might just be worth you just quickly noting. So go back to verse six. It says that, you know, our sufficiency is from God at the end of verse five, who made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Just hone that for a quick second. Ministers of the new covenant. Minister has the idea of those who serve. Like a waiter who would serve a table. And he says, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's what we get to serve now. Now what we get to give, what we get to show, what we get to be a part of is this new covenant ministry. And he takes that term ministry and uses it four more times to kind of highlight the difference between the old and the new covenant. So he'll say in verse 7, he says, if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones, was glorious. So the Ten Commandments, they were there, but it, it didn't bring life. It only brought death. So then there in verse 8, then the ministry of the Spirit is so much more glorious. That, that now this work that Christ is doing in us and does by the power of the Spirit, it is so much more beautiful. He goes on to say that ministry of condemnation, verse 9, if the ministry of condemnation had glory, because ultimately that's what it is. It just shows us how broken we are then the ministry that makes us right, the ministry that makes us right with God is so much 
more beautiful. If the ministry of condemnation had glory, verse 9, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Glory has, again, that idea of beautiful, shining, glorious. It's used over a dozen times here in chapters 3 and 4, and, and, and so he's saying this over and over again. Like, this is beautiful. Like, this is beautiful. Do you see how beautiful it is? I mean, the kind of thing that it should capture us and draw us. And so, again, he gives us this comparison. He says, so the Old Testament, it had glory. But when you think about how glorious Jesus is and this new covenant, it so far surpasses, it's almost as if this other glory isn't even glorious. It's not even beautiful in comparison. That's what he said in verse 10. Notice it. It says, for even what was... What was made glorious had no glory in this respect because the glory that excels. Silly little picture, but it's going to help somebody. Let's imagine that I give you a really powerful flashlight, like 90 batteries. I don't know, kind of, you know, it's a good, strong flashlight right now. And then I send you out into the noonday sun. Well, you know how it would work. Have you ever done that? Have you ever turned on a flashlight outside and you're kind of like, is it even on? I don't know. Like, you know, I, I'm shining, but I can't tell. You know, I mean, the sun is so glorious. It is so bright that even though this has light in comparison, I might as well not even have a light because it is so much better. That's what he's saying. So if you could see the new covenant, it's not that we're, you know, hey, well, this one's okay. This one's a little bit better. It's like it's so much more beautiful that it's as if the other light doesn't even shine because we have something that's so much better than that. It's so much more beautiful. What Christ is, it is so much more. If that wasn't enough, he adds one other nugget. Verse 11, it says, For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. The new covenant, it's eternal. It remains. It, it stays. It lasts. It's forever. Where the old covenant, it's passing away. So, it's not that God's truth is passing away. It's not that God's holiness is passing away. But that relationship that doesn't work for anybody, it's moving away because it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. In fact, Hebrews goes over this in more detail. I'll just give you one verse out of that. Hebrews chapter 8. He says, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. So that which is becoming obsolete and growing old, it's ready to vanish away. He says it doesn't work. It's not that we are, are trying to reestablish this old covenant relationship with God. It's going away. Like, that's passing. That's not, it doesn't work. It never worked for, for people. It only showed God's holiness. So now we have something so much better. So I think, again, how Paul said it. He says, I'm afraid for you. I'm afraid, you know, somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity as in Christ. That's as clear as I'm trying to say it to you here this morning. I hope that in my smallness, and I recognize it's small, and the small places we've tried to think about the new covenant, I hope you see how beautiful it is. So that you would say, why would I turn from that? What in the world would ever make me want to have a relationship with God that's based on my performance instead of what Christ has done for me? Why would I ever be drawn back to that? That's, that, that's death. This is life. This is so much better. It's the kind of thing that we take and say, I want all those other things are going away because I see this and I want that. And I just want to lay that before you in the most simple way. So let's do this. You can close your Bibles, notebooks, whatever it is you have open. And let's just take a moment to circle around this and try to ask you 
So what do you do with this? How do you respond to this? Well, that's a good question. I don't know what God has for you, and I'm believing that He's making it personal, but I can hit a few thoughts. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. We're so glad you're here. Yet one of the big dangers is that you're here still trying to earn God's favor. Like you're kind of thinking, okay, I'm trying to be good. I'm going to church. I'm trying to do these things. How do I get saved? I mean, that's what I'm trying. I'm trying to be a good person. We're just going to tell you that's never going to work for you. That is never going to work for you. And if you think that's what we are, we're not. We're a people who, are, who recognize we've been brought to an end of ourselves. We've been brought to a place that we say, hey, there's nothing good in us. We're insufficient of ourselves to think that anything could be of ourselves. And we're inviting you to come to an end of yourself. And we're inviting you to believe upon Jesus. We're inviting you to have a relationship with him that would bring you into a real relationship, save you, and change you from the inside out. He would cause you to be born again. And that life would begin now and change for all eternity. And if that's you this morning, we're just telling you, hey, this is good news. Good news for you because this is the gospel. This is what Jesus does. And if that's what you are here not having, we invite you to it. So again, maybe some of you, you don't have it at all. But maybe some of you have it. And yet you're in that space where these things aren't that clear to you. In fact, the more honest you would be with yourself, you're like, you know, I feel like I'm struggling. Like, some days I try to live in relationship, and then I try to be religious. You know, like some days I'm trying to, I'm resting in Christ, and the other days I'm trying to earn God's favor. And I'm just telling you, you're not alone in that struggle. I just want you to own the struggle and say, okay, I want to see it. And I want to see that Jesus is so much better. And I want to say, okay, God, why would I ever be attracted to something that's going to put me back under a legalistic relationship when I could be living under an abiding in Christ, walking in the Spirit? Hey, like, God, let's do it that way. Let's, like, let, let's do a relationship with you that though I am going to come to the conclusion more and more that I am absolutely insufficient of myself to think that anything could be of myself, as he says in verse 5, but my sufficiency comes from him, that no longer I, but Christ in me, no longer me, but what Christ can do with me, that he would be the one that would do that. And if that's you this morning, I just want to make it so beautiful that you would be like, I want to know more of that. Like, I don't know, I don't know all that that is, I just know that's good. And you would say with the Apostle Paul, when he says that in Philippians 3, he says, have I already attained to this? You know, if I fully got all of this, he says, no. He says, but one thing I'm doing, I'm forgetting those things which are, are behind, and I want the high calling that's in Christ. Like, I want, more of, I want more of Jesus. I mean, I want more of him. I want more of what he is. And I want to make it that beautiful and just hoping that in that sense, you would be attracted to Jesus and say, God, let's do it that way. That sounds much better. I like life. I like spirit. I, I like eternal, I like no condemnation. All those things sound good. Let's go that direction. So if that's you this morning, I invite you there. There's a few of you. Boy, you, you, you understand what we're saying this morning. And, and you understand the difference and you're doing well. And I just want to encourage you to stay there. Don't, don't let anything pull you back because all of us can be pulled back. Be one who holds fast to this beautiful relationship we have with Christ and, and be in that place of being entirely insufficient in yourself, but finding your sufficiency that comes from God. And it's beautiful. It is gloriously beautiful. So let's do this. Let's take a moment and pray. Maybe you're in one of those spaces this morning. In all honesty, just come to God and just tell him about it. Ask him to help you get there. I'll ask him to help you bring you into that which he has for you this morning. I'm going to do the same thing. We're just going to take a quiet moment, give you a moment to pray, and then we'll come back and close together in worship in just a moment.
God, you are holy and just and righteous, God. Think about even the establishing of the old covenant, the first covenant, and it's right that you would call people to walk in your ways, to do righteousness. But Lord, sin has destroyed us, and you know that. And you gave us the law to confirm to us how broken we are to further bring us to an end of ourselves, to be a tutor that would bring us to Christ. God, I pray for anybody that's outside of that right now, that is still trying to earn their way to heaven, trying to be good, to to make you happy, yet they don't know you. I pray that you would be that tutor that would bring them to Christ, bring them to being born again, to being changed from the inside out, to having real life, rescue these that don't know you, Lord. I pray for that. Then, Lord, I pray for those who do, those that you've bought with your blood, that, Jesus, you made a a covenant in your blood, paying the price for their sin by one sacrifice forever. God, and yet, the lies that Satan has woven into this world, the legalism that would trap us into a life of earning your favor, trying to be good in our flesh, which we could never do. God, rescue your kids from that. Draw them to the life that's in Christ, to a place of abiding in you, Jesus, of walking in the Spirit, of living life, no longer us but you. Teach us that more. Rescue those who are confused and just make this so beautiful that it stands before them like the shining sun and they would walk towards it say I, I, I don't fully understand it but I know which direction I'm moving I want that I want the beauty of Christ I want the glory that is of this new covenant I want, I want more of you I want more of that make it that beautiful towards us that nothing else would draw us away from you God establish us in you draw us to that and thank you that it is true Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you've made. Thank you for this relationship with you, this new covenant relationship, this gospel that you made possible, Jesus, by your blood. Thank you for it. We honor you now in it and celebrate it and say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. May God draw you to that and all that he has for you in that. If you have questions, hey, we're here. We'd love to talk about this. If God's drawing you to him, hey, make your way up after this service. We'd love to be a part of that. But right now, let's close in worship. You can stand, and we're going to sing a final song. And as you do that, I just want to take a moment to bless you in God's name. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.